Well, our passage for today is the first 11 verses of Philippians. It's Philippians 1, verse 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart, and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And I just realized if I don't have my phone up here with a clock on it, I'll preach for 45 minutes, so I better grab that. And we don't need that. Um, so, um, a few months after Michelle and I started dating, way back in 1998, um, we, uh, we decided we wanted to take a little road trip, like a day trip kind of thing. So we got in our heads, we're like, we're gonna go to San Francisco. All right, California, let's, let's drive to San Francisco. Now, um, the problem is where we lived in, in Southern California to San Francisco was about a six hour drive. But we're like, you know what, we'll, we'll, we'll drive up in the morning and it'll be great and we'll spend the day and we'll drive back that evening and it'll be wonderful. Well, our, our family said, that's a really bad idea. That's a really, really long day of driving. So we had a change of plans and we decided, you know what, we're gonna go to San Diego. San Diego is a three hour drive, it's much more manageable. So one Saturday morning in October, we headed out early in the, mor in the morning, we drove down the coast, and we spent the day in San Diego. Now, one of the great things about San Diego is that there's a lot to do if you've ever been there before. There are, are plenty of good options. Um, so we wanted to do everything we could in that, in that day trip. So we planned it out really well, and we had, I don't know, probably about 12 hours, I'm guessing, in the city, something like that and we wanted to go see the greatest hits of San Diego. So we, of course, did the San Diego Zoo. We experienced some culture at Balboa Park. We had dinner in Old Town San Diego. We did uh, the roller coaster at Belmont Park. We somehow found time to drop by the beach. We went to Coronado Island. We went to the first house I lived in when I was first born in San Diego, and we saw all these great things. Well, we drove home that night happy and exhausted. But even with all that we did with those 12 hours of time, there was a lot that we did not have time to do. SeaWorld, Wild Animal Park, Legoland, go to a Padres game, something like that. And it was like during the World Series and we, and we didn't get to go see a Padres game. Well, we loved those tri that trip so much that it actually became an annual tradition for us to head down to, to San Diego. And once we were married, then it turned into kind of a weekend trip that we would do. And then we had kids, and then we got to take the kids to San Diego, which is even better, right? Yeah, I know. I know I'm embarrassing my children right now, but they're cute pictures of you guys. I'm sorry. So, but you can take that down. So, 
No, I know, we can leave it up for a minute. We're making everybody happy except for two people in the room. Um, so now Paul, switching over to Paul. Um, Paul's greeting and prayer in Philippians 1, 1 through 11 feels a bit like that trip to San Diego. Now, there were many great things to read. There were many things um, to experience and, and we want to dive in and get everything that we can. But the thing is, there's so much going on in those verses that we simply can't cover it all. Right? So we have a couple of different options if we're going to say, how do we get into the depth of, of what is going on in Philippians 1, 1 through 11? The first is to do like a whirlwind tour. When we were in San Diego, we could have seen every single thing, spent about three minutes at each one and moved on to the next. But all we would get is nothing but snapshots. Or we can dig deep in every part. We can parse every single verse apart and see what God is saying through it. And by the time Christmas rolls around, we'll probably be in the fourth chapter of Philippians. The other option is we can pull out maybe a few key points from Philippians 1, 1 through 11. These points that will kind of help us to understand what, what Paul is saying, what God is saying to us, what are some, some big things that we can learn. And it also, I think, can help us to prepare for the whole, really the book, the book as a whole and to kind of lay that foundation. Well, one of the great things about turning those trips to San Diego into an annual trip was that if there was something that we didn't get to do one time or, or we, we kind of did a little bit wanted to see more is that we could come back to it later. Well, the good news with Philippians is, well, we can really do the same thing. You know, we can open our Bibles and hopefully one of the things that I try and do when we're, when we're preaching and teaching in here is to not only say, thus saith the Lord, this is what the Bible says, but to give you tools and say, okay, here's how we go about studying the Bible. You know, because our goal is not only that you will read the Bible on Sunday morning when I stand up here and read it to you, but that you can go home and study it more. So when we have the book of Philippians, it's not like, well, you know, Jeff only covered, you know, three main points in the sermon today. Go back and take a look at it, because there's a lot more in there. There's, there's certain things in there that even as I was working on the sermon, I had to cut out, because I thought it was really interesting, but we just don't have enough time for it. So my encouragement to you is to go back and to read Philippians again, even just these first 11 verses. Take a look there and see what is God um, saying to you? What is God saying to me? Well, today, as I just said, we're gonna look at kind of three main ideas in Philippians 1, 1 through 11. Um, we're gonna zero in on those three. The first one, is Jesus. The whole letter to the Philippians is really all about Jesus. Now, as I was preparing for this whole series on, um, on Philippians, and I was preparing for last week and even this week, um, there's this thing that keeps coming up a lot, and, and I realized just how much you know Paul loved the church in Philippi. But I am fairly certain that although Paul had deep love and probably still has deep love for the people in Philippi, if I were to give a sermon about that and focus so much on that, Paul would probably whack me upside the head first time he saw me and go, this isn't about me. The, the book of Philippians is not about me. It's about Jesus. And by the way, it's not just a letter that I wrote, it's the word of God. So take me out of the equation. Sure, you wanna learn background, you wanna learn context and all that kind of stuff, but this is a letter about Jesus. It's not a letter about me. Well, to give a, a, a visual representation of just how much this letter and, and specifically these, these 11 verses are about Jesus, I put all, you know, before when I read the scripture, it was on three slides. Well, this time I put all the scriptures, all 11 verses on one slide. So let's look at this next slide. I don't expect you to be able to read the whole thing, um, but, but there's just an image of that's what the whole 11 verses are like. Well, next, um, let's look at this next slide. 
And there you see, that's all the times that Jesus is mentioned directly by name. That's in 11 verses or seven times. This book is very much, this prayer, these first 11 verses are very much about Jesus Christ. And the rest of the book is the same. In four chapters, Jesus is mentioned by name, I believe, 38 times. And God in general, God the Father, whatever, is mentioned, I think, about another 30 or 40 times as well. The book of Philippians is full of great lessons. There are many, many wonderful verses and passages in it. But above all, Philippians is a story of Jesus Christ. It's about what Jesus is doing in this world. It's about what Jesus is doing in the church. It's about the fact that Jesus is not only calling us to be more like him, but he is the one who is doing that work in us. Let's look a little bit at what, at what the letter has to say. Usually when you get a letter from somebody, get an email from somebody, um, or even when you're reading scripture, you, you, open, you open it up and you read those first you know, sentences or so, oh, Paul an apostle, da-da-da-da, to the people in Philippi, so on and so forth. And I tend to kind of skip over it, I'm honest, you know, if I'm being honest. You just kind of skip and you go, okay, when are we gonna get to the meat? Well, that is not a wise thing in this passage. Listen to how Paul starts verse one. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. So, non-rhetorical, real question. What does Paul call himself and Timothy in this? Servants of Christ, okay? That is the number one thing. That is what is most important is Paul's identity in Jesus Christ. What he's saying really matters. He's saying it's not about my credentials. It's not about my experience. It's not about how great some people think that I am or people think that I'm righteous. It's not about that. I'm not defined by my chains or my suffering. I'm not defined. We don't even focus so much on the fact that I very well could die very soon. That's not what's important. Speaking for myself, and I think a lot of us, we tend to obsess over a lot of things in life and define our worth by them. Either how great we are or how terrible we are. Or how terrible our circumstances are, and we focus on those. But for Paul, the most important thing for him, and in turn, the most important thing for us, is Jesus Christ and who I am in him. Well, this also carries over. Not only does he describe himself in this way, what does Paul call the people? Again, non-rhetorical question, what does he call the people? God's holy people in, G- in Christ Jesus, right? Now, holy is this impressive sounding word like, you know, the Pope is holy and, and Mother Teresa was holy and, and Billy Graham was holy and things like that. But a holy person, another way of, of defining that is, is a saint. A saint is not a person who was perfect and pious. It's not a perfectly pious person. That is not what a saint is. To be a saint or to be holy means that you are set apart for God's purposes. That's it, okay? Now, that's an amazing thing. It's an awesome thing to go, okay, Paul, you are holy because you are set apart for God's purposes. It's this awesome thing, but there's also a responsibility that comes with it. You know, if I am intended to live a certain way, but God has set me apart and called me apart for something different, just like he has called each of us apart for something different to serve him and to serve his purposes. It kind of makes me rethink how much time I spend on the Disney Plus app watching Marvel movies, right? (laughs) To Paul, 
their defining characteristic was not where they live, right? Because it was to God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. They happen to live in Philippi. They happen to be going through all these other things that are going on. But what's most important about them is they are God's holy people in Christ Jesus. Our primary identity is found in the fact that we belong to Christ. I am in Christ. It's not just that I believe in Jesus. It's not even just that I follow Jesus or seek to live like Jesus. Our new life is in him. Our new life is as members of the body of Jesus Christ. So that's our first idea, is that this passage in this whole book is about Jesus. Well, the second important point for today's passage is praying like Paul. Now, this beautiful prayer has been quoted, has been preached on, has been read, has been shared in so many different forms. You know, when people, a church that they love or when they're saying goodbye or they just wanna send somebody a prayer of encouragement, this prayer has been used for generations over and over and over again. Well, this passage that we're gonna look at, it's, it's kind of three through six and then nine through 11. Um, it's broken down into two parts. One part is Paul talking about prayer and then the next part is the prayer itself. And like the rest of the letter, guess what? It keeps coming back to Jesus. Now we could spend all day on this prayer, but we're just gonna focus quickly on a couple highlights of it. So first listen to Philippians 1, three through six, which we read before. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So the first thing that Paul does is he tells them that he is praying for them. Now that's actually a really important thing and I think there's a lesson for us to learn in that. Tell somebody that you are praying for them. It's an encouragement to them and it's also an accountability for yourself if you're saying, hey, you know, I'm praying for you and then you tell them, yes, I am still praying for you. It is, it is helpful for them, it reminds you to pray, and there's just this positive thing. You ever have somebody tell you, hey, I was praying for you the other day? I know I have, and it's just like, wow, thanks. I was talking to one of our church members Thursday, and he's like, yeah, well, I was praying for you about this, what's going on, and, I'm just, and, it, and it's, just, it's a special thing to know that someone, it's great for someone to say, hey, I was thinking about you, and I love that, but for someone to say, I was praying for you the other day, it is a great gift. So pray for people, but also tell them that you are praying for them. Well, the second thing we learn after we learn that Paul tells him he's praying for them, the second thing is that he is praying a lot. Every time in all of my prayers for all of you and always. So it's this all, all, all. I thank my God every time. All of my prayers, all of you, I always pray. In the early years of when I was doing youth ministry, um, we would take prayer requests from the youth group kids every, every Wednesday night, and then Thursday, I had this group that I would get together with, and it was about three or four folks from the church, and we had our prayer list, so I had an Excel spreadsheet of all the prayers that we had from the kids, and I would print it out and hand it to everybody, and then we would spend about an hour on Thursday mornings praying for the kids. And two of the people in that were this couple named Jack and Mary Jean Hamilton, and they, I believe, were in their 80s at that point. And they were devoted followers of Jesus Christ, and they were committed prayers. Well, we sat in my office and prayed many, many weeks, and um, Jack passed away, and he was, he was a 
really important person in my life. And Jack passed away and I was talking to Mary Jean, his wife one day, and she told me about her, um, her prayer life. And she said, you know, the way that I always pray is by fib. She said it's frequent, intense, and brief. And she got frustrated when people just have these long prayers, which I can tend to fall into sometimes. But she would get frustrated when people have these long prayers. You don't need to do these long, impressive prayers. Well, if you read Paul's letter, this is not the only time that Paul says, I'm praying for you all the time. He says that to the Colossians and the Galatians and the Corinthians, all these different churches. And I don't think Paul was lying. I don't think Paul was exaggerating. So if Paul is praying for the Philippians and the Colossians and the Galatians and the Ephesians and the Corinthians and the Thessalonians and all these different people, he was probably practicing Mary Jean's style of prayer, right? Frequent, intense, and brief. Well, we spent November talking about being thankful leading up to Thanksgiving and including how Thanksgiving, giving thanks should be a part of our prayer. Paul was a big believer that giving thanks is an essential part of prayer. And we see he is thankful and he is joyful and he is joyful and thankful for all these things because of what God has done. When I listen to the prayer that Paul prays for the people, Philippians 1, 9 through 11, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So I wanted to break down this prayer and say, okay, what are kind of the key points within this prayer. What, what, are the big, what are the big things that we, can, that we can focus on there? So what I did was I put the key points into yellow text, all right? You realize that the key points make up probably more than half of what the prayer is because I think what Paul was doing was that whole, you know, frequent, intense, and brief. It was intense and it was brief, but he was praying very focused and very seriously for the people there. So instead of trying to parse it out, I'll just invite you to listen to it once again and soak it in. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. There's a lot in there. I mean, like I said, we could spend probably two weeks just on this prayer that Paul prayed for them. But there's just one thing that I will, I will point out to you from there. Um, so, so Paul is in the midst, Paul's in jail, whether he's probably in Rome, but maybe in, was it Ephesus or Galatia? I don't know, he's, 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 in, he's in jail somewhere and he's having a hard time, right? At least the people think that he is. And then the people in Philippi are, are facing challenges. They're dealing with Rome and, and Roman control and all that. There's all these difficulties that are going on. But listen to what Paul prays for. It's not their physical needs. He prays that they would grow in love, that they would grow in wisdom, that they would grow in faithfulness. Now, obviously, Paul knew the situation. He knew that they were facing very real threats. He knew there were challenges. He knew that there were real difficulties that they were facing. It's not that he didn't care about those things, and I guarantee you he was praying for those things as well. But I wonder how often we focus so much of our prayer on physical needs that we neglect praying for the other things. We neglect praying 
that others would grow in love and wisdom and faithfulness and that they would live for the glory of God. Our prayer is absolutely, we need, we're told very directly, lift up your needs, lift up your concerns. If you're sick, have people pray for you. If you are suffering, have people pray for you. Be praying for other people. God tells us to do all of that. But he also calls us in this passage and throughout scripture to pray that their love would abound, that they would grow in wisdom, that they would grow in faithfulness, that they would live for the glory of God. Well, on our annual trips to San Diego, we would tend to do kind of one big thing we'd go to and then do some of the smaller things. So sometimes we would go to the zoo or sometimes we would maybe go to SeaWorld or go to Coronado Island, things like that. But every time we went there, it might be, it's close to every time we went there, we got a meal from our favorite Mex- Mexican restaurant in Old Town, a place called Casa de Bandini. Now that was a place that my parents went to back in the 70s and that they told us about like, oh, when you go, you gotta go to Casa de Bandini and we got the carnitas and it was really good. But every time we went to San Diego, we always went back to that one place. That even happened when they lost their lease in Old Town and they moved 25 miles up the coast and we had to go to the new location. Well, with the book of Philippians, there are many great things to look at. There are many big themes, many big ideas that we can study, verses that are key, verses that are wonderful and beautiful. But the more I read the book, there's one that I just keep coming back to. And I come back to pretty much any time I'm gonna, I'm gonna study it. And it, I don't know if it's a turning point in the, in, the, in the book, but it's a really important thing, and it's beautiful. Paul is describing his prayer for them, and then in verse six, he says these words. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now Paul has plenty of reason to pray with joy, to pray with thankfulness for these people. He looks at their lives, he sees you're you're living faithfully. You're doing what, what I taught you, what scripture has taught you, you're giving generously, you're continuing the work of the gospel with perseverance, even when others have failed, even when others have disappeared and given up the hope, you have continued. But that's not really why Paul prays the way that he does. The heart of his prayer, the heart of his joy is not about how great the people are. He says, I pray with joy being confident of this, that God who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And then he carries on in verse seven. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, no matter what's happening, all of you share in God's grace with me. See, Paul isn't just hopeful because the people have a great track record of faithfulness. Paul is confident because these are his brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul is confident because they are saved by grace. Paul is confident because God is faithful. And not only has God saved them, but God will continue to work in them, work on perfecting them and making them more like him. There will be moments when the people will fail. They are doing great, they're doing wonderful things, but there will be moments when the people will fail. There will be moments when God's hand is hard to see. But God's call and God's work and God's hand does not come up empty. There's an Irish pastor and theologian named Alec Matier, passed away a few years ago. He wrote these words. 
He said, salvation would be a wretchedly unsure thing if it had no other foundation than my having chosen Christ. The human will blows hot and cold, is firm and unstable by fits and starts. It offers no security of tenure, but it is the will of God that is the ground of salvation. No one would be saved had not the Lord been moved by his own spontaneous and unexplained love to choose his people before the world was, and at the decisive moment to open our hearts to hear, understand, and accept the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. This, then, is assurance. God has willed my salvation. Last week, we talked about how Paul and Silas came to the city of Philippi. And if you remember, it's because they were gonna go one way and God said no. They were gonna go another way and God said no. And they said, okay, God, what do you want us to do? And they sat there and waited. And then God said, okay, now I want you to go over to Macedonia. And if you remember, once they got to Macedonia, they found these people who were out by the river. It was kind of a, a women's prayer group. And, and they're sharing, they're praying, they're talking to the people. And listen to what happened. Acts 16, 14. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. The people in Philippi are this amazing example of the fact that it's not about how great they are, it's not about the decisions they make, it's not about the decisions that we make, it is about the work of God, it is about God calling us and opening our hearts to hear and accept the gospel. I'm a follower of Christ because God chose me. And I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in me, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Each new series that we do, um, I try and create a new slide that kind of captures the theme that we are studying. Um, this time, I found an image of a sculptor at work. So we, we have this gentleman here, and he is creating, creating this sculpture. Well, there's a, a, a couple big things that we can learn from a sculptor and his art. The first is that that stone did not choose to be a piece of art. That stone was just sitting there being a stone. It was the artist who chose that piece of stone to use. The second is that the work is done not by the piece of stone, but the work is done by that artist. And he's chiseling away. He's getting rid of the excess. He's smoothing out the rough spots to complete this masterpiece that he is creating. See, God has chosen you. God has a design for you. And every single day, whether you see it or not, he is working on you. He is transforming you, not only into some kind of rough piece that he can maybe use in some way, but he is transforming you into his masterpiece. As we begin this new year, we may not yet know what God has in store for us. But we know that he has great plans for his kingdom and he has great plans for us and he has great plans to use us. Our confidence is not based on our good works. It's not based on our worthiness. Our confidence is in the grace of God. 
Our confidence is God's work in us. And we are confident of this, that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the confidence that we can have. Lord, there's times when it's hard to see and there's times when it feels like we're just getting beat up and knocked around. But Lord, you are the one that we trust in. You're the one in whom whom we find hope and life and meaning and direction. Lord, help us not to to lean upon our own understanding. Help us to not lean upon what we think of as, as our good works or the good works of other people. Lord, they will always fall short, but Lord, your truth, your kingdom, your power will always prevail. Help us to trust in that. Help us to find confidence in that every single day. Lord, work in us, work through us. Lord, break away all those things that get in the way, that sin, that self-centeredness, all the stuff that is obscuring who you have intended us to be. Lord, use us for your glory, use us for your kingdom. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.